So as I said, this is the beginning of the conference, uh, so to speak. Um, our, our, the main speaker that we're bringing in, Sandy Wilson, will be speaking. Uh, his first talk will be Thursday night. So let me give you the quick rundown of it. Uh, Thursday night, our ma- we'll have a main session at 7 o'clock. Friday night, we'll have a main session at 7 o'clock. Saturday morning, we will gather for our third main session at 9 o'clock. Directly following that third main session, there will be two hours of breakout sessions. Now, we have changed up just a little bit, so let me explain that to you if you're planning on coming. Uh, During the breakout session, um, the breakout sessions, that first hour, I will be speaking to the unmarried. Um, So if you fall into that category of singleness, um, for whatever reason, um, I will be speaking during the first hour, I'm going to be lecturing, and in the second hour, um, I will be giving, um, I'm going to be joined by a panel, we're going to answer your questions, we're going to talk practicalities, application, and so forth. So that will be from 10.15 until 12.30. During that other time, outside of that, we're going to have a marriage and a parenting one. Now, originally, we were going to do marriage and parenting the exact same way, a lecture and then application. But there was a a big, for people who are registering, wanting to do both. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to do parenting, we're going to do marriage in the first hour, then parenting in the second hour, and then we're going to come back the next day during Sunday school hour, and that's when we're going to do the panel application answer questions on marriage and parenting, okay? So for those of you who want to do both marriage and parenting, you can do that now. We're going to divide those up during those breakout sessions and then come back between services for the Sunday school uh, time on next Sunday week for today, and we'll talk application. Um, If you're uh, in, in the single seminar, it doesn't affect you at all. So that's the plan for the week. Today, to start it off, I wanted to start off foundationally. In 1977, uh, psychologist and evangelical Christian James Dobson founded the organization Focus on the Family. The philosophy behind it um, was and is a good one. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of civilization. As the family goes, so culture goes. Historians have been quick to point that out, and Dobson has um, repeated that over and over again. And so because of this, it is right, it is right uh, to give the family institution singular focus, unique focus. And so began not just an organization, but as many of you know, an entire focus on the family movement that really dominated evangelicalism through the 80s and 90s. Uh, During that time, the New York Times labeled James Dobson the most influential evangelical leader and focused on the family, the most influential evangelical organization. It is safe to say that over the past few decades, family has received primary focus within evangelical thought. There was a recovery of the importance of family. And yet... Here we are 40 years later on the heels of the focus on the family movement. We are bewildered and asking what has become of our families. Marriage has been redefined by the pious court of our nation, the crowning achievement of a very aggressive and militant effort to redefine sexual ethics and the family as an institution. Divorce rates are now officially over 50%. And that's just those who even care to try this thing called marriage. Um, 
Increasingly, the idea is being rejected altogether, preferring instead the low commitment, low costs of cohabitation. Internet pornography is an aggressive, malignant cancer that has invasively spread into nearly every home. Singles inhabit a dating culture marked at best by casual hookups and at worst by sexual assault, as we are seeing more and more. And perhaps most indicting of all, we must acknowledge to our shame that the rising generation, the very ones parented by the focus on the family movement, are rejecting. Not just not just Bible's family values, but the Bible itself. In a tragic twist of irony, the children raised by focus on the family parents are at alarming rates renouncing the faith of their parents. Something's off. We still don't get it. We still need help, and I would say fresh help. Help that fits the current culture with its unique challenges. We need a refocus. This is my sermon title says. We need a refocus on the family that fits where we are today. Maybe we need to revisit the implications and principles and strategies of the focus on the family evangelical movement. That's why we have decided to host a conference around this topic. We are bringing in someone I have more respect for than anybody on this topic. Fantastic speaker. Um, who has not just preached the sermons, but has lived them out in his family, children, grandchildren, marriage. But I get to book in the conference. I get to book in the conference this Sunday and next. And today we begin the discussion by returning to the inception of family itself. We turn to Genesis 2 and the original creation of family by the creator himself. And what we are going to see is family as the culmination of creation and the devastation of creation, both the culmination and devastation. First, we need to see family for the noble thing that it is, the very culmination of creation. You probably already know, if you're familiar with the Bible, that the creation story itself culminates with the, with the creation of man, this unique creature, it says, after the image of God. But what is interesting about the formation of man, as special as this creature is, is that God breaks from his celebratory routine in creation. Every time God creates, he then celebrates. He appreciates. The specific refrain is, God saw that it was good. So he makes something, he looks at it, and it says he sees that it is good. He celebrates. Well, after creating man, this special creature after his own image and likeness, look what it says in verse 18 of our passage. The Lord said, it is not good. Isn't that interesting? Everything else he has created, he saw that it was good, but upon the creation of his image bearer, the most special creature, he says, it is not good. But this is only because his image, as it is now, remains incomplete. What's not good? It says, it is not good that man should be alone. You see, God is a triune God. 
One of the implications of the Trinity is that at the center of all reality is relational love. So man is not truly God's image while man is alone. Which is why God says that man's solitude is not good. And that he will create a helper fit for him. The term helper may come across demeaning in English, perhaps even pejorative in English language, but you need to know in Hebrew that is a very, very noble word. In fact, the other times it is used in Scripture, it describes God. God is our helper. The one we desperately need. And so that is the sense here. Man is incomplete and in desperate need of a helper. And not just any helper. A helper that is fit for him. Verses 19 and 20 there, what it does is it adds desperation to Adam's isolation. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. The picture is of Adam searching creation far and wide as every beast of the field, every bird of the air comes to him and looking in desperation for a helper. But no beast of the field, no bird of the air is found suitable. So it says that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Finally, Adam says, finally, someone like me. Finally, one who fits me, one who gets me, one who compliments me, indeed, was made for me and I for her. Literally a piece of me. So now what are they to do? He has found what he so desperately is looking for, but what does he do with what he has found? What are man and woman to do with one another? Is this just a procreation thing? Finally, humans can now breed like the other animals? No, that does not do justice to Adam's words. This is much more than finally I have found someone to breed with. This is, well, this is love. Something the beasts of the field and the birds of the air were not given and cannot comprehend. But something that has utterly seized God's image bearers. For the first time, love has awakened within God's creation and it leads into something incredibly profound. Verse 24 is famous, obviously. But we often neglect that it starts with a therefore, which means it's actually an application of something. What is the application of love? What does this, this mysterious, rapturous experience that has sprung up within Adam and Eve, what does it compel them to do? Get married. Therefore, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
what a strange thing we humans do. We don't just mate, we hold fast to a mate. We cling in a covenantal commitment to another. And it's not just a utilitarian survival of the species mating that we do. No, no, no. The way ours is described is the two become one flesh. Eve was taken from Adam so that the sexual act is described as becoming one again. That is to say, Adam was literally made for Eve and Eve for Adam. And when they unite together in sexual intimacy, they actually become whole again. And the point in all of this is that something utterly unique has happened within God's creation. Something mysterious, something heightened, something that when you look at the creation narrative as a whole is to be viewed as the high point, the very culmination of all creation. Creation displays the glory of the creator. And the highest display is not just found in the creation of image bearers, though we're getting close, but more specifically, two image bearers becoming one flesh within the covenant of marriage. That's a more specific revelation of the glory of God. A mentor of mine in the ministry, Joe Novitzen, likes to say that the ecstasy of sexual intimacy within the safe confines of the marital covenant, specifically... And just, it is what it is. Specifically, that rapturous moment of sexual climax is the closest creation ever gets to experiencing the euphoric delight that forever exists within the Trinity. The closest this creation ever gets to the delight and joy that forever exists within the Trinity is sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage. But even now, We're not quite done with the culmination of creation. What did the rapturous love of the Trinity produce? Creation. God did not create because he is incomplete and needed creation to be fulfilled. God has forever been complete and content and fulfilled within the love of the Trinity. No, no, no. Instead, creation is the spilling over of love. The expression and reproducing of love that others might be invited to share in the love that has forever existed in God. And now I ask you, what is the ultimate outcome of the two becoming one flesh? If sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage is the closest creation gets to the delight of the Trinity, then is there likewise a spilling over of marital love that others might be invited to share in the love of the marriage covenant? What does two becoming one flesh produce? Offsprings of marital love. The mysterious reproducing of God's image. The creation of new image bearers. The culmination of creation is not just marriage, but family. The family is the closest thing we get in all creation to the story of God and his creation. And we know that Genesis has family and not just marriage in mind here because it speaks of marriage in generational terms, doesn't it? 
Would it not make sense and perhaps even flow better if the father and mother part were left out of verse 24? Doesn't it seem to make more sense, especially considering Adam and Eve don't technically have mother and father? Wouldn't it seem to make more sense if it says, therefore a man shall cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh? But instead it says that a man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, which means verse 24 has more in mind than just marriage and sex. It is talking about the formation of family. So summing it all up, the culmination of all creation is this special creature created in the image of God. But more specifically, the marriage of the image of God but more specifically, the spilling over of marriage into offspring invited to share in that love, the culmination of creation is family. Creation is all about family. This profound, mysterious picture of the creator, the triune God himself. And because family is the culmination of creation, it is likewise the foundation of all creation. Do you remember God's original command to his image bearers? Be fruitful and multiply. But now we see that fruitful multiplication takes place not just by making offsprings like animals do, but by leaving father and mother and clinging to a spouse in marriage and the two becoming one flesh, which then overflows in the reproduction of more image bearers included by birth within the family, the safe confines of marital covenant. In other words, God doesn't just want creation filled with a mass of disconnected individuals, but with the reproduction of families. Which is why the story is told through the narrative of generations. Creation is not filled with people. Creation is filled with generations. And the plan was perfect. And would have worked perfectly. Look at the concluding verse 25 there. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The picture, of course, is innocence, right? They are naked, meaning they are fully known and nothing to be ashamed of. And were they to continue in their state of innocence, creation would be filled with families of innocence, a world with nothing to be ashamed of. But that's not what we have become, is it? We have dealt thus far exclusively with God's design, but unfortunately none of us have ever tasted that. So we need to talk about family in our reality. Now, this point will be much shorter than the first point. I wanted to take my time to establish the family principally. Um, so this point will not be as long because the second point is going to turn into the entire conference. But briefly, to set the stage for the rest of the week, let's look now at the devastation of creation. We've seen family as the culmination. Let's see it as the devastation. Again, chapter 2 ends with, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But these idyllic words now only haunt the memories and longings of image bearers. They are now just echoes of what once was and should have been. Because chapter 2's perfection 
gives way to chapter three's devastation. Seven verses later, the eyes of humanity are opened and they are ashamed at what they see. They are ashamed of what they have become and they are hiding from their creator. And then Adam and Eve bear sons and the first family on earth murders itself. One generation into the story and they are burying each other in shallow graves. The culmination of creation has become the devastation of creation. As families and generations spread, now they leave paths of ruin and misery. You see, and this is important, the power of God's design cannot be denied. And that's why its misuse is so destructive. Here's what I mean. Marriage is a sacred covenant, whether we recognize it or not. Whether to our world it's just become a piece of paper or not. Marriage is a sacred covenant, which is why divorce and its legacy is so destructive because it is a tearing apart of that covenant. When image bearers have sex, the two are becoming one flesh, whether they recognize it or not, which is why sex outside of marriage is tearing us apart. The power of father and mother over children, it cannot be denied Covenant theology will work. Whether we want it to do or not, whether we recognize it or not, the power of father and mother over children, but now that power has become a destructive force. We are not formed by generational love as much now as we are formed by generational sins. Singles, I'm, I'm going to talk... Obviously, I'm going to talk a lot about what all of this means for you this week. But on a fundamental level, it means this. You aren't single, actually. There's no such thing as single, according to this theology. You may be unwed. You, you, You may not have left father and mother to cling to another to start a new story. But there are no singles in God's design. You are part of a story, a generation, a convergence, not just of your parents' DNA, but of their sin and their shame. Oh, you're a part of a family. Generations of mess that you're alone dealing with. Do you see what I'm saying? The power of the original design cannot be denied, but sin is like a virus to the design so that now family is destroying creation rather than blessing creation. What are we to do? Well... If the power of the design remains, then what would happen if the design were redeemed? If the power of family remains, then what would happen if families were redeemed? The family is the most destructive force in all creation, but it could likewise be the most redemptive force as well. You want to change the world? Change the families of the world. Think generations, not individuals. The evangelical church has become so obsessed with individuals. It's not bad. Go go save an individual soul. Only so that a new story can start. (laughs) A new generational story can start. And this is why 
focus on the family was a noble goal and powerful strategy. But as I said before, it didn't seem to work as we had hoped. In fact, one could argue it was actually counterproductive. How is it that an era of Christianity focused on the family yielded arguably the most rapid downfall of the family society has ever seen? Well, I think there's a fundamental flaw to the focus on the family philosophy. Actually, two. One, one I'm talking about in this sermon. Um, one will be next week. Um, so you can come hear this. But, but a fundamental flaw here to the whole philosophy, and it's this. Focus on the family. Whose family? Which family are we to focus on? You see, focus on the family became obsessed now, and I'm not just talking about the organization now and, and, and Dobson, I'm off him. I'm just talking about the movement itself, the evangelical movement itself. Focus on the family movement became obsessed with the families of culture and turned into a socially conservative political action group promoting policies that reflect biblical family values. I didn't make that up. That's, that's their website. It's a politically, political action group promoting policies that reflect biblical family values. Okay, okay. I'm not saying that there is a need for that, certainly is. But it has to start in our homes. Our families. Focus on which families? How about mine? Far more powerful than family value legislation and policy is the actual witness of family values. And this is where we have failed, friends. So many Christians obsessing over the world's redefinition of family while failing to practice God's definition of family. It's one thing to hold to biblical convictions. That's easy. It's another to live out those convictions. Brothers and sisters, our doctrine and convictions might be in order, but our families are a mess. Our families are a mess. And the latter will always negate the former. So, would you do this? Application. Would you do this? Would you come to our conference this week? I really mean that. If you were on the fence or you're just like, ah, I just don't know, I don't want to spend the money, don't want to devote the time, would you please this week focus on your family? My one and only application because the conference is our application to this. For a week, let us stop obsessing and fretting over the failure of family in our culture and actually look at the failures of our families. Let us repent before we call the world to repentance. We have designed this week to speak to you no matter where you are. We have intentionally done that. So wherever you're coming from, please register and join us. Now, let me end with hope because I think we all need it. Let me get us to the table. Right after the fall of the world, God promises to fix the world. You know that. Genesis 3, fall, and then immediate promise. What's interesting about the promise is that he would do so through the seed of a woman. He will not, like an angel from heaven, show up and fix the world. No, no. Instead, he will redeem what the generations of the earth have laid waste by joining the generations. By being himself born into a generation. He will redeem the families of the earth by joining the families of the earth. 
He will redeem families from the inside out. And that's what he did. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. Fully God, fully man, meaning a full member of both families. A full member of the Trinity and a full member of humanity. And this is his promise to us. By faith in Jesus, our Redeemer, we become members, it says, of the household of God. We, like Jesus, become members not just of humanity, but of God's household. Literally, it says, adopted as sons and daughters of God. Literally, and try to grasp this, co-heirs with Christ. The inheritance of the Trinity belongs to you as a child of the Trinity. So leave it to God to redeem the mess that we made of his plan of family by turning it into an even greater family. One family of all creation with God as our father and Christ as our brother. Let me thank him. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us as orphans. You have brought us in and made the truth of the gospel and its implication upon our lives transform our families. Lord, may we all humbly this week approach you asking where it is we, focusing on our families, need to repent, need to say we're sorry, and need to change. Lord, we're going to need your grace as we do this because nothing is more sensitive Nothing is more difficult. Nothing strikes at our fears and anxieties more than this. And so we pray that you surround us with your grace and let us know that wherever these applications take us, that you, God, are our Father, that you, Christ, are our brother, and that we are members of the household of God, co-heirs with Christ and eternal inheritance. Bless us now as we celebrate that through your sacrament, we pray. Amen.